be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with the inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Amen. Uh, thanks for that introduction, I guess. <laughs> uh, no, we have, we've known uh, Alan and Victoria for a good while now. And um, they, they took us out yesterday to see uh, Cheddar Gorge, and it was quite nice. Went into Cheddar and in, into Wells, and I, and I kept thinking it would be a shame if Alan and I stumbled upon a group of bald-bearded men, because it would be impossible for our wives to pick us out of the group, you know. So uh, just to, to clarify, this, um, my name is Matt, not Alan now. There's a different person behind the pulpit. Um, and I would just want to say greetings in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, and the fact that we can do anything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ is a miracle. Uh, we sing in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, don't we? We did just a moment ago. We, we just prayed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And um, now, miraculously, we're going to gather around the Word of God in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to see what the Lord Jesus Christ would have for us in 1 Peter chapter 1. Uh, we're going to dive into this passage in this passage, it is jam-packed um, with, with gospel truth, with great relevance for every church in every generation. And um, yeah, I, I just want to start by reading this first phrase in verse number three. And we'll kind of just chip away at this as we go through, okay? But beginning with this, uh, this, uh, this verse, verse number three, praise be or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, d- during the recent COVID lockdown, and don't, don't worry, I'm not getting into that, John and Alan, don't worry about that, I'm not, I'm not going there. Um, a classic truth to Christians has once again reared its head. And that truth is, there is no hope in this life apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. I've watched and observed how differently most Christians have responded to the pandemic and even the separation of death. And how my unsaved friends have approached it. You know, don't get me wrong, lockdown has affected us all. You know, Christians are not impervious to the effect of lockdown. In fact, I was affected greatly, negatively, uh, by, by lockdown myself, mentally. Um, but that being said, the difference has not been whether or not Christians or non-Christians have both been affected by it. The difference has been seen in the hope or the lack thereof, present in those affected. And the pandemic and lockdown 
were the end of the world for many. It was the end of the world for many. You think about it and you have to sympathize with them. Um, Everything that many of them lived for was taken away. Social lives were taken away. Pubs and restaurants were were shut down. Their hobbies were taken away as sports and music venues were were shut down as well. We we were essentially confined to our gardens. And again, this is not an anti-government, anti-lockdown spiel. Don't get me wrong. The point of this is that the reaction of many unbelieving friends of mine was completely devoid of hope. Completely devoid of hope. There was no hope on the horizon. And at the end of the day, it was, it was kind of like the end of the world for them. Yet for Christians in the pandemic, though also greatly affected, the change of circumstances, the temporary loss of, of, of social and holistic outlets, could not take away the hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Amen. The theme of this passage that we're going to see this morning is Christ, our living hope. Christ, our living hope. And in the midst of the ugliness of the pandemic, even among Christians debating lockdown and viruses and vaccines and all these different things, I saw Christians full of hope. How is that? I should say, why is that? The reason for this hope is because of what we see in 1 Peter chapter 1. Biblically speaking, hope is another word for faith. Yeah, The word hope in the Bible means expectation. And in verses 3 to 9, it tells us three main things about the believer's hope. And um, I have three points because every good preacher has three points. And they are alliterated. I'm just, uh, they are alliterated. I don't always do that, but they are alliterated. So um, I I try to avoid that sometimes. I'm not going to lie because I feel like I fall into a rut. But uh, yeah, I'm a good preacher. I have three points all alliterated this morning. So um, the first thing that we see is it's a powerful hope. The hope that we have in Christ, our living hope, is a powerful hope. Verse 3 begins by saying, Blessed be or praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter here begins to pronounce a blessing upon God. Or so it appears. But really this statement in verse 3 is not so much a pronouncement as it is a declaration. Blessed be the God. Praised be the God. This was a common declaration among uh, the the prayers of Old Testament believers. Um, It appears that this language, kind of this type of language, began after the exodus from Egypt. They would say things like, and you see this in writings throughout uh, history and archaeology, Blessed be the God of heaven who delivered us from the hand of the Egyptians. Um. They eventually incorporated this type of language into many facets of prayer. Blessed are you, God of heaven and earth, who gives us the herbs of the field, who gives us the fruit of the vine. And Peter, through the Spirit, takes that principle here and he gives it gospel significance. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter here confesses, he confesses something very important. God is blessed. Blessed is his fixed state. I want you to hear me this morning. Blessed is his fixed state. He can never not be blessed. He can never not be praised. It just is who he is. Just as God is love, just as God is holy, just as God is righteous, God is blessed. God is to be praised. It is his fixed state. And this is very important. 
Every blessing that the Bible pronounces on born-again believers is merely a consequence of our connection to the blessed one. Every single blessing pronounced upon born-again believers is merely a consequence of our connection to the blessed one. So everything that follows this statement flows out of the truth of who God is. He is the blessed one. He is the praised one. It goes on to say in verse number 3, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Now we evangelicals often use uh, this biblical terminology, don't we? Born again. I love it. Born again. Jesus makes it clear in John chapter 3, doesn't He, what, what this means to be born again. You know, physically speaking, we do not birth ourselves, do we? I didn't birth myself. Our parents are responsible for that. The existence of a child is dependent upon the parents giving them life. And just as we have been physically born, we must also be spiritually born. Born again. Romans 5 refers to us as dead in trespasses and sins. Meaning our sins have separated us from the life-giving creator. The one who gives life. Our sins have separated us. Cut off that flow of life to us from the only source of life. He is the source of life and we are spiritually lifeless because of our rebellion against Him. And again, spiritually speaking, we all need life. But that life cannot come from ourselves. We cannot birth ourselves, can we? So, so, so where does this life come from? And read again that great statement in verse number 3. It says, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Not only has He caused us to be born again, He has begotten us in the old language for a purpose. To a living hope. A living hope. Now when we think of Jesus Christ, especially most Roman Catholics in this day and time, they see a dead Christ, don't they? There's a Christ on a crucifix suffering over and over again. It bothers me to even say that. But that's, that's what, is, what is practiced. But we don't have a dying Christ that we serve. We serve a living Christ. And with a living Christ, we have a living hope. Something that this world cannot provide for us in any other context. It is not a dead and merely wistful hope. It is a living hope. But this, is a, this hope has a source. And what is the source? And we can say Jesus Christ, yes. But more specifically, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. The resurrection of Christ implies the death of Christ. Let's go back to the death of Christ for a moment. We don't live in the death of Christ, but we have to mention the death of Christ. And we have to be aware of the death of Christ. It was necessary because the physical death that Christ died was one, it's, it's one in which I should have experienced. One in which you should have experienced. The wages of sin is death. The payment of sin is death. And the word death means separation. Christ's death was in substitute for me. In substitute of my separation for Him. His death paid my penalty for sin. It was as if Matt Green was on the cross because Jesus died for me. He took the death I rightly deserved and through his death, I can be forgiven. Praise God, right? 
His resurrection, on the other hand, has a different significance. His resurrection is the source of me being born again. Not the source of me being forgiven, the source of me being born again. And there's a famous verse, that one in John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life, everlasting life. Have you ever stopped to think about what eternal life even is? What even is it? What is eternal life? Can I give you the best definition I've ever heard? This is not original with me. Eternal life is the life of the eternal one. Eternal life is the life of the eternal one. Verse 3 clearly says that I am born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You understand what, what that's implying? Being born again is living in the life that Christ has in resurrection. It's living in the life that Christ has in resurrection. My eternal life is literally Christ taking His resurrected life and infusing it into me. The resurrection now is my life. Is that not a powerful thought? I'm I'm admitting my own stuff here, aren't I? I'm sorry about that. I'm, I'm admitting the scripture. It's a powerful thought. His resurrected life now is my life. I live and exist, spiritually speaking, because Christ rose from the dead and gave me His life. The resurrection is my life. And I th- I, so, so that means that my life as a born-again Christian is one that I share with Christ. I share it with Him. And, and this is why Paul said, to me, to live is Christ. To me, to live is Christ. Um, my Christian life is the outworking of the resurrection in me. I want you to understand that every good work that you could ever hope to bring forth in faith is one that can only and will only be done by that resurrection power coming from the inside out. It's the only way it's possible. And I know that sounds really lofty, but man, something to strive for, isn't it? What a goal to have to allow the power of the resurrection to come from within and come outward. My Christian life is the outworking of that. And this reality also means that even physical death itself cannot separate me from Christ. Eternal life is the life of the eternal one. So that means I will live for as long as Christ is alive and he's the eternal one. Therefore, death is only a passageway. It's only a door from living with him here to living with him there. What a powerful hope we have. The second point is our prepared hope. It's not just a powerful hope, and indeed it is. It's also a prepared hope. I think this is a good time to reinforce the fact that the chapter verse divisions in the Bible are not inspired. Uh, just as they, uh, they, they really just exist for our navigational help, you know. But notice there is a comma at the end of verse number 3. Therefore, verse 4 is a continuation of the same sentence and the same thought. We are born again and given a living hope through Christ's resurrection, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 
Now that word inheritance is an important word. We're not, I, I, we, we could give a whole study on the word inheritance, couldn't we? Um, but we're not going to. It'll suffice us for the moment to say that inheritance is a possession. It's something that you possess. Something that is given to you that you possess. We all possess eternal life through the resurrection if we've been born again. How secure is this possession? That's the, that's the question. And that's the thought that God is trying to get across to us through Peter in this passage. How secure is my possession? My salvation? How secure? Well, let me just say this. We possess eternal life through the resurrection. That should be enough for us to understand. But look what he says again. To an inheritance, and he he mentions three different facets, uh, three descriptions of the nature of our inheritance. I'm reading from the ESV and it says, uh, inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and does not fade away. Incorruptible, meaning it's undecaying. Or, or rather, yeah, it's undecaying. It says undefiled, which means it cannot be soiled. It does not fade, which is pretty self-explanatory. It's unfading, right? It's undecaying, it's unsoiled, it's, it's, it's unfading. And it says it is reserved in heaven for you. Isn't that wonderful? Reserved in heaven for you. Uh, we, we, we went last night, uh, it is... Coming up this week, our 15-year wedding anniversary. In our day and time, I feel like that's a pretty stellar accomplishment. Um, and we, we went in the bath, and of, of course we went down and saw all the sights. There's the, the sea there, you know, the, uh, what do you call it, the, where the water comes together and it creates the ripples. and The, the way that's what it is, yeah, yeah. I was going to call it, a, I called it a waterfall last night, and Alan was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Uh, so we, we walked down and saw that. We, 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 uh, we, we had a meal at the botanist uh, earlier in the, in the day, and it was lovely, the hanging, the hanging uh, kebabs and all that. Wonderful, absolutely wonderful time together. We, we made a reservation beforehand, and uh, it would have been a terrible thing to have shown up there. And, and it would have been just like me, by the way. I'm just going to say, if I'd made some mistake on the reservation, and I booked it for today rather than yesterday, that, that would have been terrible because there would not have been any spots open. And we'd been caught out, wouldn't we? I'm glad that my resurrection, or that my salvation, is reserved in heaven. God has reserved it for me. It's not something that I can mess up on. It's not a reservation that I can make a mistake on. It's a reservation that the perfect, sinless, holy one has made for me on my behalf. It's reserved in heaven. Reserved means to guard, to keep, to keep from escaping. To keep from leaking is kind of the, the visual image that we get from that word in the Greek. And it starts in verse number 5 by saying this, who are kept. And this, this tells us how secure our salvation is. Kept by the power of God. You remember what we talked about, what you talked about last week as far as who God is? What was it? Omnipotent, right? He is all-powerful. And the all-powerful God of heaven and earth, the one who literally defeated death, hell, and the grave with his resurrection, holds your salvation eternally secure by his omnipotent power. That does something for me deep inside. We move on to the third point, and we hasten on. My proven hope. My hope is not just powerful. It is not just... Preserved, my hope is proven. Verse number six, notice what it says. 
In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Now the word trial here means test. Test. According to verse 6, trials are temporary. He says a little while. Trials are purposeful. He says if necessary. Have you ever thought about that before? Trials are, are, are purposeful. There's always a purpose to trials. Sometimes, um, you know, the, the, the difficulties and, uh, and difficult times that we go through are a result of our own actions. Yes, there are times when we reap what we sow. This is true. And there are other times when God is chasing us, chastening us, trying to bring us back on the right path, isn't there? But sometimes God allows trials into our lives for reasons that we don't know. For reasons that we cannot define. Only the omniscient God that we learned about today knows the reason for those trials. But he has a purpose and it's necessary. And he's trying to bring us into a greater realization of knowing Christ through those trials. These trials, they they are temporary. We must remember that. This life is temporary. We have eternal life to be realized someday In the Father's house. They are purposeful. But they are plural. I don't want to sugarcoat life. If if someone told you to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. Under a false pretense. That all of your problems are going to go away. You swallowed a lie. Right? You have ingested error. Because the Bible never says our trials are going to go away. What it does say. Is he'll be with us in the trials. They're plural. And, And perhaps most importantly. They are not devoid of joy. And this is wonderful. He begins by saying rejoice. Now that is counterintuitive, isn't it? It's completely counterintuitive to what we understand in the physical realm. But God is not physical. He's metaphysical. He's supernatural. He works outside of the the realm of time, space, and matter. He's not subject to what we're subject to. He says rejoice in the midst of the trials. He goes on to say in verse number 7, So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire. So I'm just going to put a pen there and come back to it here in a moment. As a cross-reference, I would like you to hold your place here in chapter 1 and flip forward. I always get confused about whether it's forward or back, but forward to chapter 4 and verse number 12 of the same epistle. I think this, there's, there's a connection here between the two. At around the time that, that 1 Peter was written, there was a major tragedy that took place in Rome. I'm not sure if you're familiar with this in history. There was a fire, and the city of Rome literally burned. And, and many historians blame Emperor Nero for this, and we won't go into reasons why. But Nero blamed Christians. And consequently, the next... 200 years or so involved an intense persecution of Christians in the Roman Empire. The ones to whom this epistle was originally written were likely right in the fiercest moments of that persecution. And this is why Peter says what he says in chapter 4, verse 12. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial. When it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. 
The persecution they were experiencing was a consistent experience. It was consistent. But this persecution was also referred to as a trial. So, here's the question. We've been kind of dancing around this all morning. But here's the question. If a trial is a test, then what is God hoping to learn about us? That's the question that comes into my mind, or came into my mind initially. What is God hoping to learn about us by this test? And the answer is nothing. Nothing. He already knows everything about us. He already knows whether or not we belong to Him. He already knows, He knows His sheep, doesn't He? He already knows. It's not a test to see whether or not we're worthy of being saved, being His children. He's hoping, listen to me, that that we learn something about Him. That we learn something about our relationship with Him, our connection to Him. Look in the very next verse of chapter 4, verse 13. He says, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering. That you also may rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. Here's a question. What does it mean to share What does it mean to share in Christ's sufferings? It means not only do we suffer as Jesus suffered. But it also means that he is with us in our suffering. He is sharing with us in our suffering. And someday we shall be with him in glory. And what a day that will be. The point and purpose is this. And and perhaps it's a bit cliche. The God that brought you to the trial will bring you through the trial. Not just into the trial. God doesn't just lead us into the trial and abandon us. God brings us to the trial, leads us directly into the trial. But he's with us when we come out on the other side. The God that brought you to the trial will bring you through the trial. And the question is why? I ask that question so much when I'm preaching and when I study the Bible. Why? Or, or maybe it's how. Maybe, maybe how is the question again. It is because Christ was with you as you answered the trial. He'll be with you in the trial. He'll be with you in the end of the trial. He promised, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. Now back to chapter 1. We're nearly finished. That's not preacher jargon, by the way. Nearly finished. Verse number 8 of chapter 1 says, Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. My mind automatically goes to Thomas. You know, all the other disciples saw the resurrected Jesus. Thomas wasn't there. He said, I'm not going to believe He's risen unless I put my hands in the wounds, right? That's what he said. Jesus appeared miraculously in the midst of them. He said, Thomas, come put your hands in my wounds and... Thomas didn't have to put his hands in his wounds. He fell on his face and said, my Lord and my God. And Jesus made a wonderful pronouncement as a result of that. I kind of forgot there were people up there making eye contact with you for the first time. Jesus made a pronouncement upon Thomas that reverberates throughout the halls of history. He said, blessed. He said, Thomas, you're blessed because you've seen and you believe. But blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. By the way, that's us. We are blessed. Though we have not seen, we believe and we love Him. He goes on to say that you have, though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and you rejoice 
with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. In the midst of trials and intense persecution, there's inexpressible joy and abundant glory. And we come full circle to explain why that is. Remember, blessedness is God's fixed state. It's His fixed state. He can never not be blessed. It's who He is and every blessing that the Bible pronounces on us as born-again Christians in the life of the resurrected one is merely a consequence of our connection to the blessed one, to the resurrected one. Everything that we are, every joy that we could experience, every glory that we could have is only always in connection to our connection to Him. You see, I can't find joy and glory apart from Him. But I can find joy and glory because I've been made spiritually alive by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. I can find joy and glory because my inheritance is reserved in heaven because I'm kept by the power of Christ. I can find inexpressible joy and abundant glory in trials because the blessed one promised that he'd never leave me or forsake me. I know it feels like I'm saying that over and over again. But it's because God is emphasizing that over and over and over again. Why do the trials happen? Ultimately, the trials happen for my joy and for the glory of God. That is the only reason that trials happen. And you know, we can, we can look at that and it can be completely disheartening. Sometimes. If we look through the eyes of the flesh. Because we might look at something and not understand it. But one really important principle I'm having to teach myself over and over again is that finite minds cannot fully comprehend infinite truth. That's not a cop-out. That's me acknowledging who God is. He is the omniscient one. And sometimes you just have to say, God, I trust you. But that's not easy. Um, You know, my my deacon this past week um, took holiday down the Cornwall and he had fantastic weather have you ever taken a holiday anywhere like Cornwall and had fantastic weather I've not it's always raining sideways whenever I go on a holiday somewhere um, he had fantastic weather but usually we're stuck inside of the caravan or wherever we're at and Amanda buys one of these big puzzles right huge puzzle pieces and uh, you work on it throughout the day but isn't it frustrating at the very beginning because me I'm, I'm usually like there's something faulty with this there's some, they've left a piece out. This doesn't belong in here. They've put a piece in it doesn't belong. And you're trying to maneuver it around. You're trying your best to make it fit in places where it doesn't fit. And sometimes the little groove is a little bit too small, but you're still trying to push it in with your finger. And you don't understand, and it looks like chaos, and it feels like chaos. But the one who made the, the painting that was cut into a puzzle painted a masterpiece. It's beautiful when it's finished. And in this life, my friends, sometimes we might have one or two pieces at best. And we're trying to piece those together and say, God, why has this happened? Why have you let my family member pass away? Lord, why did you cause me to become redundant at my, at my job? Why have you allowed this into my life and that into my life? Why have you allowed this illness into my life, God? Why am I being persecuted for my stand in Christ? And all the time we try to piece together Pieces that don't belong together because we don't see the finished picture. But we serve a God who is painting a wonderful 
portrait of grace in our lives. His work is perfect. His work is beautiful. And it may look like ugly chaos to us at times. But I assure you it's not because God is neither ugly nor chaotic. Every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of lights with whom there's no changing. Every good and perfect gift comes down. So I want to encourage you to find your place of joy in trials. Not in the trial itself. Even Jesus looked at the shame of the cross and despised it. Don't rejoice in the trial itself. Rejoice in the fact that in the midst of the trial, the one who knows the beginning from the end, the master painter, is 100% painting a masterpiece. It's for your joy and it's for His glory. May God bless these thoughts to our hearts. May we have a quick prayer. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word. As Alan said, Lord, these thousands of years later, just to be able to look down and read what the Lord says. Why You say, what a blessing. How much You must love us in order to provide a way of constant communication with us. We praise you for that. We praise you that the same truths that were true to these believers in the first century are true to us today. The tomb is still empty. You are on the throne. And we still need you. Lord, help us to glory in the fact that our salvation is secure, preserved in heaven forever, always connected, inseparable from the eternal life of Christ. Lord, help that to resonate in our hearts the next time we go through a trial. Maybe there are people here this morning going through a trial right now. I'm sure there are. Lord, I pray that your resurrection hope would shine through the darkness of their trial to give them the joy that only you can give. We don't just ask this for our joy. We ask it for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.